The race is on and it looks like heartaches And the winner loses all Hello and welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, back with you from the Brooklyn Bunker. This is going to be our final show of 2019. Been a really fun year getting this show launched, getting to learn so much and meet so many interesting people in the breeding side of the business. Just every week I learn something on the show, and a lot of that is due to my co-host, who I'll bring in right now, from Lexington, Kentucky, from Windstar Farm. It's Sean Tugel. Sean, how are you today? Doing great, Pete, and uh, quite the experience this past year doing the podcast with yourself and J.K., formidable uh, podcast veterans, and uh, just been been a fun experience to get get people on from from the you know this great sport and industry that we have to showcase, and hopefully get it out there how great of a sport it is and uh, get some more more owners, more listeners, more breeders, whatever we can do to uh, build the fan base. And it's uh, been quite, a, quite an experience and uh, it's kind of exciting to see where we can go with 2020. I love that idea. And I will throw that out to listeners. If there's a guest you want to hear, somebody who would fit with the tenor of this show, let us know and we'll target them to have on these airwaves. Obviously, sometimes we do things that cleave pretty close to the news of the day, but we also have a lot of just conversations with interesting people, hopefully, and the feedback we've gotten is good. And we know from the other show, the In the Money Players podcast, that sometimes the best producer is the audience itself. And when they have ideas, we're very much open to that. And 2020 is going to be a big year on this show, I predict, Sean. looks like we've got some sponsorships, some new partners on the horizon who we may be bringing into the fold. We're excited about that, and we just want to keep it going, covering the business and also handicapping a bunch of two-year-old races along the way. Gave out some winners in that regard. You had some real, uh, some real gems, and it's always great to me to hear that perspective of somebody who lives and works on the breeding side of things when it comes to the horse playing side of things. If we can sort of bridge those two groups, the horsemen and the horse betters, I think that can be a pretty powerful combination. Absolutely. And, and the more crossover we can have between all aspects of the game, certainly, you know, we need everybody from whether it be the breeder, the, the owner, the, the gambler, um, the people that, that put on the, the races and, and the racetracks, you know, everybody needs to, uh, everybody has their own, their own piece that they bring to the puzzle and, and, and make it what it is. So uh, certainly the more we can bring everyone together and, and open up more ideas, that, that's certainly positive for everybody. We haven't shied away from politics and the state of the industry and some of the trickier business going on throughout the course of 2019. And we definitely want to keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on as we head into 2020. But that's not what this show is going to be about today. We're going to do something a little different. Sean and I have both taken a look back at 2019 me from the perspective of what I perceive were the top moments, Sean from the perspective of top performances, and we figure we're going to round out the year in the first part of the show today by reviewing some of those. Sean, let's start with you. When you think back to the best performances you saw in 2019, what's at the top of the list? Or if you want, you can go from uh, your, your fifth to your first, or you present them in any order, a little production meeting in the middle of the show, as we like to do here. But, uh, <laughs> but what, do you, what do you think of first? Well, uh, you know, one, you know, with our, with our upcoming guest, uh, Michael McCarthy, uh, 
certainly it's, uh, it feels like a long time since the Pegasus of, uh, of 2019, and, and it looks like it's going to be the last uh, Pegasus as, as we know it, certainly taking a little bit of a change for uh, 2020. But uh, I remember being there that day, it was soupy, and, uh, and I thought City of Lights' uh, performance there in the Pegasus was, was dominating and uh, was, was extremely impressive. So it was a long time ago, but not to be forgotten that it happened in this calendar year. And on that same race card, um, takes me to what I think is uh, Horse of the Year performance, and it kicked off that day in the Pegasus turf. But, you know, what Bricks and Mortar did uh, this year and, and going undefeated and, and winning historical races throughout the year, uh, and certainly, um, you know, emulated his daddy there in the, in the Breeders' Cup. Uh, certainly his, his daddy just missed out on the Breeders' Cup, but, but, but Bricks and Mortar to, to win like a champion on, on what I consider racing's biggest stage. I think uh, that would be my number one overall performance of the year is Bricks and Mortar's campaign. Uh, other races I thought that were extremely impressive, um, you know, I always think on, on the big days, you show up with the horses that show up with big performances. Those are, those are ones to, to really uh, focus on. It's usually the best field. I thought Mr. Money's Pat Day Mile uh, was, a, was a formative performance there, winning by open length in front of the biggest stage on on Kentucky Derby Day, I thought that was a that was a very good performance, and he backed it up with many other good performances throughout the year. Um, and, and looking forward to seeing him as one of the many three-year-olds that look like they're going to turn uh, into 2020 and continue on their racing career as four-year-olds. I think we're going to see a lot of horses uh, from the three-year-old crop come back as four-year-olds, and, and something we haven't necessarily seen uh, for many years. And I like that trend that we have in racing of keeping these horses in training longer. Um, I thought Independence Hall's Nashua, from a two-year-old perspective, was was very good. Very exciting to see where that son of Constitution um, goes with his his map to hopefully the Kentucky Derby, which I believe is going to uh, happen on I think it's at New Year's Day, the Jerome, and um, that would be uh, one. And then to, to round out my top five, um, I think uh, that uh, performance that we saw between two out. Standing uh, horses in Omaha Beach and Chancelot in the uh, Santa Anita Sprint Championship. I thought that was uh, that was a thrilling stretch duel. Um, whenever two horses can hook up at the top of the lane and and uh, fight it out down the down the down to the wire, it's, it's always a, a great uh, great display of, of athleticism and will to win. And, and what we're all in the business before, business for is to see that uh, fighting these horses all the way to the wire and. Uh, We've seen many good performances like that. And it was, you know, when it's decided by a nose, uh, super exciting. So, uh, you know, those were, those were five. It was hard to come up and narrow it down. Um, it's a long year and and many different divisions to keep track of, but, uh, I thought those five were, were pretty good performances from 2019. Lots of good stuff to unpack there. I'll start with what I thought was a non-traditional, but excellent choice of mentioning Mr. Money, who, as a speed figure aficionado, I mean, this is a horse who ran three of the biggest races of his generation, a little more under the radar because of how I thought he was smartly campaigned and then maybe a little bit unlucky 
later in the season, but I agree. This is a horse who, if he makes progression from three to four, really could make some noise in 2020. And I'm exciting, uh, very excited to see what happens with him going forward. And I think that's one that I love that you're reminding people of that they may have forgotten with all the, the big stuff that happened in in the, the latter part of the year that he had that run of uh, whatever it was, three or four races with the big figures, visually very impressive performances. Yeah, were they against the, the tippity-top level of competition? Maybe not, but in terms of a foundation for a horse who could go forward, I think he's a good include there. Independence Hall is a horse that I think sort of surprisingly, I'm going to say, we haven't spent more time talking about as much as we've talked about the two-year-olds this year. This is one who many have as your winter book favorite, potentially, for the Kentucky Derby. I'll pull up some prices while we're talking, but putting that one, putting the race aside from Independence Hall, what are your predictions about him going forward, Sean? Do you think this horse deserves his place at or near the top of the market for the Kentucky Derby? Absolutely, and and this mayor already produced a horse that uh, won had had won a Kentucky Derby prep and and was a horse that uh, after his performance in the spiral black onyx for Kelly Breen was a horse that uh, you know many people had circled as as a potential top Kentucky Derby horse. I think he got hurt going into the Derby. I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, it was several years ago, so we know that there is that class form there um, for for the, the mayor to produce a top-level three-year-old. And, and certainly with his triple-digit speed figure already, uh, when he won the Nashville, you, you'd have to say he looks like a formidable two-year-old turning the calendar page. Yeah, they're not priced up everywhere. But the 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 places I'm looking at for the Derby, I am seeing some 20-to-1 around about Independence Hall for folks listening in the U.K. and Ireland. I mean, it's hard to say. There's so much that can go wrong between now and then. But that's, let me put it this way. It's not an unappealing price to be at this point. You could surely find worse prices on the board when it comes to next year's Derby. You mentioned Omaha Beach. That was a race I considered for one of my moments that we're going to talk about in a minute, just because I thought it was an amazing performance. And I had the, the the great pleasure of watching that with some other serious racing fans, big Omaha beach fans who were so confident before the race. And I'm thinking to myself, man, if this horse wins, it's really going to be something. I didn't want to rain on their parade and say, ah, he's going to be a little short of fitness. The race is inadequately short. He's got this monster against him with the tactical advantage. How's he going to possibly win? And then he goes and does it. It was a extremely impressive and we're going to get to see him next week apparently back in action for the Malibu sounds like Malibu and then Pegasus World Cup to round things out for Omaha Beach hopefully he can finish off with a couple of victories I'm a big fan of that horse and would love to see it and you mentioned about the Pegasus and yes it's not going to be the quote unquote 12 million dollar purse or whatever we saw the first couple of years but when you take when you factor out the entry fees yes it's a major purse cut from whatever it was 6 million added to to the 3 million but it's still a very significant race and i, I think we have a chance for it to to still yield some impressive performances to help get the 2020 horse racing year kicked off are you planning on going to the pegasus are you still excited about it all in all despite the changes Look, I'm excited for any big race day. It's still a $3 million race in South Florida uh, uh, during the heart of wintertime. So uh, I haven't missed one yet, and uh, I don't plan on missing this one. 
Excellent. I'm not sure if I'll be able to get down there in person, but I do look forward to uh, paying close attention and covering it. And boy, it probably wouldn't be the worst idea in the world for me to get out of snowy New York in January and try to get down there. Maybe I will. Maybe I will try to make some magic happen. Um, but yeah, I, I'm still. I I don't like. I saw a few things. I mean, you know, social media shouldn't take it too seriously. But people sort of like scoffing at the the, the quote unquote failure of the of the Pegasus. And to me, that's the wrong attitude. You know, we got to take chances in this game and some things are going to work out brilliantly right from the get-go. Many things, there's going to be growing pains, but that's okay. If you're not taking chances, you're not going to do great things. So I want to make sure to try to give people a wide berth when they come up with creative ideas in this sport. And I did just want to make a pass on a comment about City of Light. I'm so glad you reminded me of that because it's been so long ago it didn't originally pop in my head as one of the top performances of 2019 but of course it was and we are very excited to have Mike McCarthy we had him right after that race I love the idea we'll bring things full circle later in this show talking to him catching up about where he is looks like he has uh, some interesting runners in the barn as we approach 2020 as well Let's move on to my moments, Sean. I'll run through these top to bottom the way that you did. I put the personal ensign stretch duel on the list, a late midnight bisou going back and forth. You used the phrase before about horses throwing it down in the stretch and giving the fans everything we want to see. I thought that was a fantastic example of that. I was on the wrong side of it betting-wise, but as a racing fan, if that doesn't get your fire burning, your wood is wet. I think when you look back to things that happened in 2019 that people are going to be talking about for decades, the Derby DQ, the first one uh, in the history of the race that happened in the stewards room directly after maximum security delivers that great performance. In my view, according to the U.S. rules, correctly DQ'd. But boy, it was something that uh, gave us an awful lot to talk about on podcasts in the weeks and even months Following that, we had Jason Service as a guest on the other show last week. Still sounds a little uh, PO'd when it comes to that, but certainly one of the moments of the year for me. Gotta give some props to John Velasquez. Most grade one victories, 661 was the record-setting win this year. I've had so much fun watching him. His time in the game mirrors mine almost exactly. I was a little bit late getting into racing as a fan, didn't really get fully into it until my 20s, right when Johnny V was starting out. I've also always felt a special kinship to him. was wonderful to see a good guy set that historic mark. This year's Met Mile is a race that I feel like is underappreciated. The idea that we had the the, the sprint champion, some people's horse of the year in Matoli, taking on the horse that was the favorite in the classic and also a two-time Dubai World Cup winner in Thunder Snow, getting to watch all these horses compete on the same day. Yes, we didn't quite get to see the stretch showdown with the trouble that McKinsey had in the race. It would have been all the more memorable had that fully materialized. Still not sure who wins that if McKinsey gets the the clean trip, but it was definitely one of the races of the year. And then the other one I'll throw out as a moment that looks forward into 2020 
is Enable in the King George, another one of those historic throwdowns they'll be talking about, I believe, for decades with Enable and Crystal Ocean, with Enable reclaiming the King George crown. And then, of course, you know, wasn't able to quite get it done in the arc, but will be in training next year. That's going to be something very much to look forward to. Sean, your thoughts on my moments. Am I leaving anything critical out? Do you think I did an okay job summing up 2019? I think he did an excellent job, Pete. Uh, certainly the personal instant, uh, it, it's going to be a different feeling this year without uh, a late there to to contest it. Certainly uh, that was a battle between two great mares. And then, um, you know, I think keep Enable, that was unbelievable where she won. And then I thought her race in the arc was still pretty pretty special, although she didn't win. She came so close to, to winning her. Her third arc, what a mare, and it's amazing that they're going to keep them in, uh, keep her again in training uh, for next season. But Tolly's Met Mile was, you know, that was fantastic to see all of those horses line up there between McKenzie and Thunder Snow and and Matoli and and all of them. So uh, that was pretty exciting. And uh, I mean, can't can't go without talking about the Derby DQ. And uh, hopefully, uh, I'm sure it's still a, a, a terrible reminder to some and, and a great memory for others but uh that definitely is a, is a marquee moment there in the uh 2019 racing calendar i did have eddie Olchek on as a guest on the other show talking about his new book which is really cool and of course there's tons of racing in it he was dq'd into the superfecta as a result of maximum security coming down let's just say he had a little bit of an opposite take to the previous week's guest jason service when it came to the derby dq but i'll add to this the story gets so much better with what that horse maximum security was then able to subsequently accomplish. Yes. The hiccup in the other Pegasus, a race where I think they were thinking of it more as a public workout than a race. And obviously that didn't work out so well, but then to, to go ahead and show his quality going Haskell. And of course uh, the, the win in the cigar mile that, that, that for me was a tour de force and, he certainly deserves the position as three-year-old of the year. Any argument from you on that, Sean, when it comes to end-of-year awards, or, or do you think that three-year-old is, is clearly going to be maximum security? I mean, I would have to say after his cigar mile performance and his, his bold ruler and his Haskell after the uh, Kentucky Derby, I think does solidify his three-year-old campaign. Uh, so. I, he's just he's an amazing horse. We're 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 in a great situation that we're going to be able to see him continue on, and uh, quite the rags to riches kind of story for a horse to start off at maybe sixteen, and uh, and went on to win uh, many Grade Ones, and uh, so he what a cool horse, and and he'll be fun to watch and see how they manage him and and where he goes uh, in twenty twenty. My guess would be they will go Saudi Cup Dubai. Jason Service did not say that in the interview. He said all options are on the table. But just reading between the lines, I got the impression that's uh, – and it just seems logical for their goals that that's probably what's going to happen there. What's the story with Code of Honor moving forward? Um, Boy, that's a, that's a great question. See, I'm sure, you know, uh, listen to some other radio shows that we have in our industry that – bring uh, great stories to the forefront. Um, you know, that's another one. Chug McGahee has two 
uh, three-year-old turning four to manage there on the East Coast between performer and and Code of Honor. Certainly, Code of Honor has the has the resume there with with some marquee wins, but uh, performer in the in the last quarter of the of the year is turning into quite the three-year-old turning four, and he's got he's a really exciting horse that we haven't even talked about on the show yet. He does seem like a, a once a boy who's become a man and ready to step up and tangle with anybody. So it's going to be a fun year. I'm really excited. We've got these big events early on, Pegasus. We've got the, the Saudi race. And, of course, Dubai. We'll be following all this stuff going forward. Sean, I know you've got places to go. We've got a guest we've got to bring in, too. So I'm going to let you go. But just wanted to say to you, Merry Christmas to you and your family. And it's been really great working with you in 2019. And I look forward to what we're going to accomplish going forward in 2020. Certainly. And happy holidays to all the listeners. And uh, looking forward to the ideas that everyone has for, for the show going forward. And and what you know, what people want to learn more about and hear about. So uh, it was a fun year, uh, and uh, can't wait to see uh, what we can do for next year. And and maybe we can get that elusive JK to come back and join us again. <laughs> it's funny you should mention that. And now I'd like to welcome in two people. One you're used to hearing on these airwaves. I'm talking, of course, about the People's Champion, Jonathan Kinch and JK. What's up? What's going on? Yes, I uh, I'm here, and and just to be clear, I am not the guy that ruined the Pegasus uh, Pegasus purse. He's uh, the guy that's uh, the other the other guest we have on right now. <laughs> we'll see about that. Oh my goodness! But our next guest is funny enough about the first guest we had on the In the Money Network over on the other show, the Players Podcast, after the Pegasus race in. 2019 and very happy to have him back on the airwaves to wrap up this year. We were just doing a little recap of 2019. One of Sean Tugel's top moments of the year was city of lights romp in that race. It feels like it was longer ago than it was with everything going down this year, but very happy to have back on the show to talk about that and a whole lot of other stuff happening. Michael McCarthy, Michael, how are you today? Guys, thank you for having me. Yeah, it does feel like it was a long time ago. Obviously, now with the changes being made to the Pegasus, and I was kind of feeling sorry for myself when I said, "Man, can you believe I only won this race for nine million dollars?" <laughs> now there's going to be some unlucky sucker out there. It's only going to win it. It's only going to be three million. <laughs> It is amazing. We were talking about this with Sean, and the case I made was I feel like there's too many people out there in the world quick to be cynical and and say, oh, it wasn't a good idea and all this stuff. Look, in our game, true or false, Mike, in our game, if we want to change things for the better, we've got to take chances. And if some things don't work and we have to walk them back, so be it. It's still a $3 million race to help us kick off the year. I don't know. I'm still kind of excited about it. What do you think? I mean, I think ideas like that are kind of what our game is all about. Mr. Stronach had the idea when he had the Sunshine Millions East versus West when he first took over San Anita and Gulfstream. You know, that was kind of short-lived and it's sort of morphed into something a little bit different now. Obviously, there's no interchangeable races in states and what have you. All held the NCRS, I think, when Barry Weisford and a bunch of these guys got together and tried to make it, you know, a series for older horses. I thought that was very good. I kind of went the way of the Dodo as well, but you've got 
you know, places like Saudi now with the $20 million race and these mega races, and who knows how long they stick around for, but they certainly pique people's interest. And they certainly pique the horseman's interest. So as long as we're coming up with ideas like that, I don't have a problem with it. If someone's willing to put up the money and you've got the horse, why not go? Let's reflect a little bit on the City of Light when you mentioned it feels like it was so long ago. But with a little bit of perspective, what did that win mean to you as a trainer and to your career? I mean, to anybody's career, whether it's Steve Askinson with Gunrunner, Bob Baffert winning with Airgate, what have you. I mean, numbers like that, horses like that. It's not like a horse just got good for, for a little while and was able to jump up and win a race like that. I mean, that's, those are horses that have been consistently good throughout their careers and they're a step above, you know, their peers, their competitors. It was a crazy wild day obviously the weather was inclement that day and the whole from the breeders cup to to the pegasus wasn't sure if we were running not running what we wanted to do um the stars aligned pegasus day and the rest is history but so almost for me it was a little bit more of a relief that the horse showed up on breeders cup day showed everybody was about and then some affirmation on pegasus day um so there was a lot of, uh, I mean, there was a, an incredible amount of, of satisfaction. There was also an incredible amount of, of relief winning something like that because I believed in the horse so much. Um, and obviously, he's gone on to a second career now at Stud, and he's proved equally as popular. And let's hope two years from now when these foals hit the ground or these babies hit the racetrack, it, it, it continues like that. But a race like that is, is I can't say it's a career maker, but it's certainly get you, you know, up and above a couple of, get you up and above the feed, man. That's for sure. <laughs> JK, I know you had a, a recent runner of Michael's you wanted to ask about. Yeah. Yeah. The Philly that, that, uh, that won, uh, the other day for, for your good partners and, and, uh, I say partners, I guess, owners and, and Eclipse, uh, uh, speech, correct. Is that, is that the Philly's name? Correct. Yes. Us a little bit about uh, about speech and kind of got her, you know, got her going, and then and what's next for her? It's pretty sharp. Two year old in training purchase, one hundred ninety thousand, which I believe may have been the top price for a Mister Speaker in training last year, this year, earlier this year. Excuse me. Uh, Philly always showed some promise. Took a little while for her to come around after the sale. Uh, her first start down in Del Mar on the turf was was solid. And I thought she had improved out of that out of that race. Her dirt work had been decent. This racetrack at Santa Anita right now is a little bit on the heavier side. We've done a renovation here in the last five or six days. It's helped kind of speed it up a little bit, which I think is good going forward into the big meet. I think you'll see sometimes it'll be a little bit faster, more racehorse time-ish. But her works on the dirt had been solid, not spectacular. Went over to Los Alamitos. That dirt course over there is tight and fast and she relished it um don't know what she beat on paper it didn't look like she beat a whole lot one of the very few maiden races straight maiden races i've seen in the last few months that didn't have a bob baffert or something like that in it either way if there was a bob baffert in there they would have had their hands full i thought this philly was very impressive on the day when they get started later, start coming around later like this one, and then show that they can be so good, is that sometimes a good sign of what's to come, or does it does it not really work like that? I think it was, I mean, it was 
such an improvement from her first start to her second start, obviously from turf to dirt. I think it was like a five-point improvement on a ragged-and-sheet number, um, like from a 13 to an 8 or something like that. Um, Ron Anderson always told me that it was too fast, too soon, is never any good. Make sure you space your races out. Um, obviously, I don't know what this filly's limitations are yet. I thought she handled the turf just fine. I think she'll stretch out being by Mr. Speaker out of a Freud mare. So there's a lot of good things. There's some grass in there. There's some salmon in there. Um, obviously pretty fun at this time of year. You know, we've got some nicer races coming up and hopefully spacing works out well enough. We can find a little allowance race or maybe a small stake in five, six weeks time and go from there. But as far as in a case like her, some of these horses, their best day is their preview day at two-year-old training sales. Mm -hmm. I'm glad this wasn't the case, <laughs> but that's often what happens. Guys have such a small window to get things right on the day. It's the difference in the filly like her selling for 90000 and 190000 You know, um, the breeze she had that day, if she had a little bit more of a robust pedigree, she easily would have been four, five, six hundred thousand $600,000. That's amazing. That's, uh, it's, it's fascinating to think about it from a business perspective, from everybody involved, from the people who raise to sell, to go on and own and train. It really does. It really does tell a story. I want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on. You were talking a little bit about the track in California and the state of California racing. Obviously we've talked about it a lot throughout the year on this show, and we've heard a lot of different perspectives from, from people out in California, I know some of whom have felt that nationally California has, has gotten plenty of criticism, but maybe not enough sympathy from the, the racing industry at large in terms of what you guys are really up against out there. How has the year been for you personally, and are you still feeling good about being a California horseman as the calendar is about to turn here, Michael? You know, the whole reason for me coming to California is I spent so much time on the East Coast and the traveling around. Although I really enjoyed my time in New York, I didn't really see living in New York full time as something I wanted to do. Um, so this is home for me. Came back home, started with one horse, have built it up to where we are now. But my feeling is the way things have gone here lately in California, I think we've been scrutinized a little unfairly we're in a sport where perfection is few and far in between you might see a horse go 10 for 10 but those those instances uh, they're few and far between um kind of like in baseball when a guy's a 300 hitter he's a hall of famer if a guy wins at 20 or 25 percent here you know he's considered an all-star but when it comes to what we've seen out here, catastrophic breakdowns, injuries, and the like. It's an unfortunate part in our game where it's something that's always going to happen. I don't think perfection is possible. We've taken so many steps, some drastic, to get this all worked out and to minimize these types of things. Um, some of it may be a little bit overkill. Some of it may, be, it may have been overdue. But I think we're seeing some Lasix reforms, which I think is good. The race day medication forum has come to the forefront. Um, 
you know, there's a few things now we're talking about the riding crop and what have you and, and public perception. For me, I don't think something like the use of the riding crop necessarily is going to bring people to the races. I've always felt that on a national level, racing is really four weekends. It's Breeders' Cup and the three Triple Crown races that you see on primetime television. There's so many different ways you can go with it, but I do think what's happened out here has been a little bit unfair. I think when this all started out here in California, what the California horsemen were kind of wanting from management here was if you're going to put these protocols and these rules in place here at Santa Anita, that's fine. We'll adhere to them, but you own racetracks and two or three other racing jurisdictions where we feel like if you're truly going to be the leader, this is what you should do. Implement this in Florida, implement this, uh, you know, in Maryland and other racetracks that you have across the country. That way you make yourself the gold standard for doing such. Um, I think now they're starting to implement some of these things in some of the other Stronic owned properties, which is good. Does it happen at a lot of these other racetracks? I can't speak for them. I don't know. You know, Santa Anita obviously is part of the national injury database. There's quite a few big racetracks that aren't part of that. So, yeah, I think anytime you're in a state like California and the climate is as such, whether it's from a racing standpoint, from a political standpoint, things tend to get sensationalized. And in this sport, it's it's taken the forefront. Um, and I think not only in California, but everywhere, it's been a little unfair. What's your personal take on solving that problem? If if I uh, if I gave you the, the job of being in charge of, of Santa Anita or Stronic, which I'm sure you would probably decline. I think a lot of what we tried to do last year, which was kind of broaden the spectrum as far as classes of racing from a little bit cheaper racing here in the state of California, um, lowering the business model to allow lesser class of horse, maybe a little bit slower class of horse to be able to run at a place like this. I think that kind of was led to a little bit of the demise. You know, people were looking for a little bit more participation from the horsemen. So I think in our case out here in California, I think the days of of 10 and 12 races on a Saturday, I don't think it, I don't think the model necessarily works anymore. Um, our horse population obviously shows that by the field size that you guys are seeing as gamblers and stuff, which I think waters down the product a lot. So I think if we can consolidate, you know, maybe write 30 or at most 35 races a week or what have you, I think it gives the horsemen a chance and I think it gives the gamblers a chance. We've had some bets here that I think have been in, implemented in, in the last, I guess, two years, you know, we went from having a pick six to a chronic type of a wager, a sunshine wager of some sort. I thought the pick six was unique to the state of California. I thought our pools were always the biggest. I thought it was the best bet around. Um, that has gone by the wayside. I think there needs to be a governing body in racing. I don't think that it needs to necessarily come from the state of California and the governor's office and what have you. So, look, you could do multiple shows on what we could do better. Everybody's aware of that now. Is it too little too late? I don't know. But 
what's going to happen at Santa Anita now over the next seven months, starting December 26th, I think is crucial to everybody in racing, whether you're in Florida, whether you're in Maryland or what have you, because I really think California is a flagship state as is New York, as is Kentucky and as is Florida. I think if one of those states falters, then the rest are not far behind. I just think that we need to concentrate on what's here, what the product we have here in front of us is from management to the horsemen to everybody. The amount of jobs that are supplied by the by 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 racing or a racehorse in California, you know, I think the numbers are staggering. Once I was told, I think it's you know, there's three thousand people that are employed inside the chain link fence here at Santa Anita. Whether you're a hot walker or whether you sell a program or you punch a ticket, um, that's a big number. And statewide, from the, where the foals are raised and programs are made you know I mean, it's like 70,000 jobs or some kind of a crazy number. don't quote me on that but it's like a, it's a number that's, that's so much farther reaching than I thought um, so I don't know like I said I could go on for days talking about this kind of stuff well the economic impact some is my real are a lot stronger than most and some of them aren't I think that medication reform is is a big deal I believe in that I believe Consolidating the product as from, you know, as I said, big race days or big numbers of races on big days, 10 and 12 races. I think that needs to go away. And I think if we've tried doing this marketing, what have you, and getting people to the races and through the turnstiles, you know, free admissions, this, that. Um, I've read a lot of things about data and you guys would know a lot more about this, but I think offering free data, you know, not so much, past performances and stuff like that, whatever company they, they are, if a racetrack you get aligned, for, in lo- aligned with somebody to go ahead and make up something like that, I think that would be huge because you walk into the racetrack, first thing you do is when you buy a subscription or you buy a program or what have you and they have past performances in there, whether it's a program that used to walk in and it used to cost you a buck, now cost you five bucks or your racing paper of choice or your, whether it's you know, a ragazine sheet, a thoroughgraph sheet, a racing form. These things on a day-in and day-out basis are very expensive. And that's how you make new fans, getting them, uh, get getting the hook in and getting them playing this game. I, we, I know we both believe that. I know you've got to go, Michael, but I did want to ask you one question specifically about the communication between horsemen and management. There's been some obvious controversy about that the last couple of weeks, but I'm just curious from your perspective, is the communication with the the folks at Strana Group everything that you want it to be at this stage, or is that something that can be improved as well? I think the lines of communication have opened up a fair bit here over the last two or three months. Craig Fravel has been a new hire, come from the Breeders' Cup. Everywhere he's gone, seems to me like he's been a winner. Del Mar speaks for itself. Breeders' Cup, probably the best organization we have going in thoroughbred racing. Now he comes here to Santa Anita to the Stronic Group. I'm sure he'll oversee all the Stronic racing entities. That's fine. We've got Aiden Butler here who has gone out of his way to, you know, speak to horsemen, to get some feedback, to give some ideas to. He'll be the first person to tell you he's fairly new to this, but he's been successful in, in his chosen career path to get to this point. 
and he, you know, made a made a concerted effort to get to the horsemen to see what he can do differently, to see what they can do differently, and what we need to do together as a group to kind of see this through here. Obviously, it's a very tying time. You've got people wanting to shut down racing who really know nothing about it, and I think that's 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 a bad deal. But I think through educating everybody, whether it be legislators, fans, myself, people in the grandstand, I think if we all work together to come to the forefront, and I think we're changing some things, I think uh, I think we'll be just fine. It might take a year or two for the ship to steady itself. But I think in the long run, I think we'll be okay. And I can't think of a better note to end the In the Ring Pedigree podcast programming for 2019 on than that. A little bit of optimism from somebody who's been on the front lines. You obviously have a lot of great ideas. Michael McCarthy, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, guys. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. And that's going to do it for this edition, this year of Redboard Rewind. I want to thank Sean Tugel, Jonathan Kinchin, and Michael McCarthy. Most of all, I want to thank all of you, the listeners. You've given us a lot of great feedback on the show, and I'm sincere that I hope you'll keep it coming. Guests to have on, topics to cover. We want your input very much. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May the hammer drop your way.